I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you, and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Tim Shaughnessy, and you are listening to Semper Reformanda Radio. So this is going to be part two in our discussion with Brandon Adams. And uh, I just want to give a big thanks to Brandon. This should have been out uh, a while ago, but I got pretty busy with the new baby at home and uh, just haven't had time to edit it. Uh, so... If you remember in part one, we left off with Brandon talking about how John Murray denied the covenant of works. And this was new to, to me, at least, and I think new to Carlos as well. And um, so that's where we're going to be picking up today. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. Uh, big thanks to Brandon and hope you get something out of it. God bless. This is interesting because um, I... I thought, and I'm going to have to go back and listen to this, because I thought I heard Sam Waldron argue that Murray did not deny the covenant of works. So th this is this is really interesting. Yeah, and, and, now, and now I'm even more curious, because when you read the report, I'm reading, I read through the introduction at least, and they give the impression that Murray is still sound, that he's still within the bounds of Westminster orthodoxy, and if I mean if he denies the covenant of works, then that's obviously not you're 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 not you you don't subscribe to the confession plainly. Uh, so that was that kind of I guess I was kind of misled by by what the report says. Yeah, well it's it gets super super complicated. So part of the issue is a matter of subscription, um, and I've got all this worked out in an article we can link to so people can read it in more detail. But um, it comes down to the matter of subscription. You know, are you allowed to take exceptions to parts of the confession and still remain orthodox and part of the OPC? And so um, thus far, it, it has been the case. So since ever since the original Westminster Confession, theologians were allowed to take exception. Um, and that goes back to the historical context of it being a, a national national model for churches. But um, even J.B. Fesco, right, who who is completely opposed to Murray's theology, in an essay that he has about the nature of subscription says, yeah, John Murray denied the covenant of works, but he still held the confession just fine because you can do that. 
Um, so that's part of it. Um, the, the OPC report. So a lot of those guys follow Murray and they have tried to use Westminster 7.1 to say, to really emphasize the gracious aspect. Um, and to try to say that's all Murray meant, but it's, they're, they're leaving out Murray's, uh, argument re- regarding the works principle specifically. And they're neglecting the fact that even though it was a condescension on God's part, it was still a covenant of works. Uh, it was still founded upon covenantal obedience, covenantal merit. And that's what Murray specifically denied. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, I, I uh, spoke to a Reformed theologian, um, and uh, I'm not going to name who it is because I didn't even ask him for permission to uh, to say this, but um, he he basically said that uh, his confidence in the OPC uh, and its committee has um, really ceased when he um, when the OPC failed to deal with Shepherd uh, Shepherd's false gospel, Gaffin's false gospel, Kennard's false gospel, and uh, failed to deal with Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And um, so. What confidence can we have in the OPC report in light of the fact that, uh, and uh, Carlos, you were even talking about this with me on the phone earlier, is that the the OPC sort of made a debacle of the Clark Van Teel controversy and you know went after the wrong guy. Yeah, in the same way, that's what that's the impression I got from reading the report that they went after the wrong guy again, which was Klein, and they defended the wrong guy, and now they're tr- they're sort of like. They, it's almost like they were citing, they were on the wrong side of the fence, very similar to the Clark Van Til controversy, but yeah. Yeah, well, I, I would say a few things. Um, I would say, first of all, uh, yeah, for those reasons, you should not have confidence. Um, you should not assume necessarily that the report is correct. You should study the issue on your own thoroughly before coming to any conclusion one way or another. Personally, I've been studying the issue for 10 years, and I found the OPC report to be one of the best documents explaining the uh, historical theology and the view of the Westminster Confession on this issue. Um, I don't agree with them in, 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 with the OPC on a number of issues, but with regards to this republication debate, that report is, is one of the most helpful in understanding the historical context and the historical theology. Conversely, the republication guys by and large, their historical theology is very poor. When I've taken the time to go and uh, look up the original sources and read them in their own context, I've found that they have misunderstood and misused them time and time and time again. Um, so, you know, you can't take my word for it. You shouldn't take the OPC words for it. You should study the issue yourself. And you shouldn't simply dismiss it just because of the, the history of Shepard and Murray. Um, you should study it on its own terms and conditions there. So, but I, I think that there is a natural progression from Murray to Shepard. I, I don't think that Shepard agreed with Murray on every point. I think he took it a step further, right? Murray denied, and I have another article uh, on the background of the OPC report going into more detail on this, but, um, right, if there is no, um, if there is no Adamic covenant of works, right, Murray denied that, then there is no law gospel distinction, and that's what Shepard denied. The law gospel distinction is specifically the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. If there is no covenant of works, then there is no law gospel distinction, and that's where Shepard took Murray a step further. 
And there's one other quick note here. Um, in the 40s, Murray was actually the head of a committee in the OPC to um, review and revise and adapt and add new proof text to the Westminster Standards as used by the OPC. Um, so I mentioned that the Leviticus 18.5 was not used in the original Westminster Confession as a proof text for the Covenant of Works. It was actually not cited anywhere in the standards for anything. Um, however, under Murray's direction, uh, the OPC added it, Leviticus 18.5, as a proof text to Westminster 19.6. So 19.6 says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, and that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner, show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. That last section right there regarding the threatenings and the promises of the law in the life of the believer is what Murray added Leviticus 18.5 as a proof text for. That's pretty substantial, and it shows, uh, it shows a logical conclusion of, of where this all leads. That Leviticus 18.5 is is uh, stating the principle of the life in the life of the believer. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to learn here. It's it's a huge topic. Yeah, it's it's. Um, well, is this the area of theology that you have uh, studied the most? I mean, it's it's not something that I've studied as in depth as you, and so uh, I really can't comment on on too much of what you've said. I, I can just listen and then maybe go back and read the stuff that you've uh, tried to point to. But, uh, is this, is this, uh, an area of expertise for you? Um, yeah, if, if I have any expertise at all, I guess this would, <laughs> this would be it. Uh, not claiming that I do, but, uh, yes, this has, has taken up my, uh, my focus for the last 10 years or so. Um, covenant theology and just unraveling the implications of these things. And, you know, my Clarkianism shows through in a lot of this and that I, I demand logical precision and drawing out ideas to their necessary conclusions and, and showing where they lead. And I think that's what this discussion here of the Westminster view and its understanding of Leviticus 18.5 shows. Um, you know, I, I think Leviticus 18.5 really is uh, a crux here in the covenantal debate and in baptism and all of that. So, right. So so th this is a good springboard now to talk about a little bit about the ref the the, reform the Baptist side of things. So Leviticus 18:5 do this and you know do this and live. Um, the way Reformed Baptists uh, reconcile that is that they just basically say that the Mosaic Covenant is not part of the covenant of grace uh, and that it's a uh, temporal. It's tied to temporal blessings, right? And so. 
But now, before, like, what are, could you explain for us what are the different, or I guess the major different uh, Reformed Baptist views? Uh, because I've heard that there's basically two, um, and I, I was actually surprised to hear that, because uh, my understanding was that by and large, Reformed Baptists were, were Federalists, uh, 1689 Federalists. Um, but I've heard you made some comments on, on other podcasts about there being other views, I think it's primarily another view. And I also heard another podcast from uh, the uh, Confessing Baptist where they interviewed, I forget I forget what his name was, but he's one of the really like, He's one of the leaders in the ARCA, in ARCA, and he doesn't hold to 1689 federalism. So that really surprised me. So could you could you just kind of take the time and sort of explain the different uh, Reformed Baptist views for us? Sure, yeah, I appreciate the question. So um, some of the history here, uh, confessionalism, Baptist confessionalism kind of died out in the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Uh, James Ranahan talks a little bit about this, explains it in his chapter in um, the volume Recovering a Covenantal Heritage. So he talks about certain various influences, um, just kind of a depreciation of theology as a whole led to the downfall of confessionalism amongst Baptists and just kind of fell out of favor. And by God's sovereign grace, you know, some of it was through A.W. Pink's writings um, put, put into the hands of certain men. Anyways, in the 1950s or so, there was this spontaneous resurgence of Baptists holding to Calvinism, um, and they they grew steadily from that time on, and kind of had to relearn a lot of these things as there wasn't a continuous heritage there teaching them. So a lot of them had to uh, relearn a lot of it. A lot of it was geographically in the in the Westminster Philadelphia region, um, and they wound up learning a lot from Westminster Seminary. Uh, from John Murray specifically and the other theologians there. And so they, they more or less cut their teeth on, uh, on Murray's theology. And, but they maintained their Baptist convictions. They saw that there were a lot of contradictions and, and lack of biblical support. Uh, but in developing their covenant theology, they, they more or less adopted the Westminster conviction that uh, all the post-fall covenants were administrations of the covenant of grace. Um, and so they, they would argue that, um, yeah, in the Abrahamic administration, the covenant of grace, children were included. They received the sign. But in the new covenant administration, things have progressed. Uh, we now uh, understand the gospel more f- fully, and that was types and shadows. And so children are now no longer included in the administration of the covenant of grace. So they would kind of make this progressive argument. Um, but they would argue that the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants were were the covenant of grace, and they would tend to view the Mosaic law as a gracious giving of the law, not as um, the law as a covenant of works. Although it's very interesting, you mentioned the uh, somebody on the Confessing Baptist there. Um, if it's the same one I, I'm thinking of, he he stated he doesn't hold to 1689 federalism, has some concerns with it, but he also specifically quoted John um, or Samuel Bolton. Um, as articulating his own view and I think and, it might be um, the same guy. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, and as warning against as warning against what he saw as certain problems with 1689 federalism. The really interesting point there is Samuel Bolton held to the subservient covenant position, which is basically the same as 1689 federalism's view of the Mosaic covenant. So, the in that particular instance, it, the the disagreement stems from just a 
a misunderstanding or lack of understanding of the position more than anything else. But, but by and large, um, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, um, as time progressed and people had a little more opportunity to go back to some older sources and, and maybe just to look at scripture in, in, uh, a, a different manner, not necessarily influenced by Murray and, and some of the other theologians, um, they saw that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, that was, that was my path here. Uh, I started studying it when I was teaching Bible study through Genesis and, and I started studying Kevin theology and what I was reading didn't line up with what I thought scripture was saying. And then through the course of talking with people, I started to get led towards, uh, towards John Owen and some of the Nehemiah Cox and some of these historical guys. And, and, uh, but it was a, a very small voice that was saying these things. So I thought that voice needed to be heard more prominently. And, and, uh, so now we have, have that view. Um, people are understand that view and, and it seems to be a lot of people hold it today, but, um, but a lot of the guys who have been in the ministry for a very long time, who, who dedicated their lives there, um, who spent their lives studying and developing uh, this older view, just haven't necessarily had the time in their busy schedules to try to understand and, and examine this new view. And, and some of them who have uh, still don't agree with every point of it. So that's kind of where we are today um, in a nutshell. Um, a lot of the younger people are starting with 1689 federalism and understanding that and coming to agree with it. Uh, some other people haven't had time to study it yet. Yeah. Okay. So, so essentially, there's two views. Uh, yeah. Yeah. More or less. Um, so, uh, sorry, I forgot your your question was also about Leviticus 18:5. So the way that um, 1689 federalism would understand it is that the law was given to Israel, like you said, as a covenant of works, not for eternal life, but for temporal life and blessing in the land of Canaan. So Mosaic curses and blessings. Uh, for Israel in the land, you know, famine and war and exile and things like that, uh, were upon the condition of obedience to Mosaic law. So, and, and again, just to clarify, 1689 federalism, it was just a label that was adopted. It doesn't imply that, uh, the other, uh, the other view is contrary to the confession. It's not. The confession is, the language is written broadly enough to embrace both views. Yeah. So does the other view have a name? <laughs> not really. Um, you know, I've I've referred to it as the 20th century Reformed Baptist view. I don't do that disparagingly. Um, I I just you know that's what's become prominent in the 20th century and what's what was developed by by those men. You know, Sam Waldron, Earl Blackburn, Walt Chantry, James White. Um, you know, guys like that uh, held, yeah. held that view. So it, it was Earl Blackburn. That's who it was. Yeah, I remember now. So okay, so th- this this is what really struck me though because. It it sounds like from what I've been from what I saw or from what I've been from what I've studied uh, that this view is almost an accident. It's almost like an accident because uh, I guess the original Reformed Baptist authors kind of got lost, and there was a you know uh, you kind of explained it already. But when 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 Baptists started coming back, I guess to to confessionalism and to Reformed theology they they came back under presbyterians and so i mean it, it's kind of it, it's a little odd to to see how things kind of manifested because so james white the, those guys you listed james white earl blackburn i walt i not i didn't know waldron i thought waldron was a federalist a 1689 federalist um there's um you know since you know in the last whatever five ten years or whatever um 
as we've been able to explain 1689 federalism more and more, you know, Waldron specifically uh, hasn't said a ton about it, but he has studied it in, in some interaction that I've seen. He's very, very close to it, actually. Oh, okay. uh, he, he does he does have a few points of disagreement, and, and the discussion, I think, has helped maybe clarify a few things. So, um, But he would, di- he would disagree that only the new covenant is the covenant of grace. He would say that the covenant of grace is, is an overarching covenant not identified with any covenant in scripture. Oh. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of points where, where he would agree. Um, so, uh, right. But that, that's a pretty significant yes. point there. Cause that, yes. that's almost, that's basically the difference between Presbyterians and Baptists. I mean, that, so, and I remember, I, that's really funny because I remember reading Walter Chantry. He, uh, he has a, you know, there's a, there's a booklet on Chapel Library from Walter Chantry, Walter Chantry about uh, the covenant of grace or some, some, something about the covenants. And I was kind of, I wasn't sure what to make of it because I thought, okay, this guy is Reformed Baptist. So, but why does he kind of sound a little bit Presbyterian? So <laughs> is it kind of, so he's one of those guys that is not. Well, he, he, yeah, he graduated from Westminster, Philadelphia. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and he's. I mean, that's where his ministry was was in that uh, that geographic area. So uh, he was very closely related with them and with Banner of Trust and things like that. So right, but but he's not. So then he wouldn't be a Federalist, 1689 Federalist that you know. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, and you know, part of it is there. There, you actually can't point to uh, a systematic. Uh, Fred Malone's is is maybe the closest baptism of disciples alone, and and he's actually, you know, leans pretty close to 1689 Federalism these days, uh, from what I understand. But, um, but it's it's hard to point to. Yeah, you know, they just they they had a lot on their plate. They were dealing with a lot of things in their ministry, so uh, writing out a full treatment of all the covenants in Scripture wasn't wasn't a top priority. So, um, right. You know, it's an on, it's an ongoing conversation. Right, and obviously you're the guy that runs the 1689 Federalism website, which is a really I've learned a ton from that website. I'm really grateful that you've been putting that stuff out there because it's helped me a lot. And one of the things I appreciate about it is, is uh, as I've studied this stuff in more detail, I, I've kind of had these sort of uh, the, these these kind of like nudges or senses that something. See, I want to verbalize it, but I haven't quite worked it out. And when I start reading these guys, the 1689 Federalists. It's exactly what I kind of wanted to say all along, what I kind of thought all along. So I find it very, it's, a, I find it to be a very compelling, logically consistent view. And I, I could see where you're going. I, I can see where you're coming from because I guess you're saying, and I've heard some of your criticisms of pre, uh, uh, Presbyterian covenant theology that there's inherent contradictions, right? There's inherent instabilities in the system. And so that, that is what, can lead to some of these extremes like John Murray the, or what you explained in, in those situations. And so um, that's part of the reason why I'm not a Presbyterian myself because I read Calvin discussing the differences between the Old and the New Covenants and he said it was basically just one of an, just administrative. And I was, that, that really threw me off. It didn't really make sense with how, how, how do you reconcile that with uh, uh, Ezekiel, where it talks about it's a new covenant, not like the old, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, right? You know, it's not like the old covenant. It's going to be a new covenant. And so that sounds like it's substantially different 
covenant but uh yeah and it, it's you know it's very interesting because kleinians agree with our interpretation there they say yeah absolutely yeah, exactly that, that's what's so um, funny about this yeah they, they just try to lean on abraham and kind of leapfrog the mosaic <laughs> covenant <laughs> well uh, it's funny that it's yeah it's really funny that you mentioned that because that's what i was that's what i was joking with pastor heinz about that if you see if you see the abrahamic covenant as uh, as substantially grace then and then having more in common with the new covenant than with the old covenant, then that's almost like by way of transitive property, you know, you kind of like, well, that kind of puts you more in our camp uh, because Moses doesn't really have that element to it. You know, it's, it's obviously very law oriented. Uh, there, there's a there's a major legal component tied to Moses that that's, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I would just on that note, I would really encourage people to read Samuel Renahan's book. Um, it, it really does a good job of showing how uh, the 17th century particular Baptist came out of the Congregationalist view, and the Congregationalists were the ones that understand understood this subservient covenant view. Um, they rejected the Westminster view, and and he just does a really good job of showing step by step how recognizing the Mosaic covenant is a um, separate covenant, a covenant of works for life and land, how that acknowledgement necessarily leads to credo baptism and he he draws it out very well yeah that, so and he's one of the major guys right i know he is i think richard barcelos uh pascal pascal denault those are like the the 1689ers that are kind of promoting or, or restoring i guess you could say uh you know traditional reformed baptist theology um so that this is wow we're we're i'm really glad we're we're getting a chance to address this because i've had this on my mind for a long time. So you're saying to kind of recap a little bit the uh, the Presbyterian discussion on republication. It sounds like what you're saying is that these guys, uh, uh, R. Scott Clark, basically Westminster West for the most part, J.B. Fesco, R. Scott Clark, uh, these guys, they attempted Klein, including Klein, they're attempting to reconcile some of these 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 really strong tensions between Westminster federalism that sort of results in uh, them sounding like Reformed Baptists in some sense by acknowledging a works principle tied to the uh, Abrahamic covenant. But now, but but what you're saying is that this is not what the original Westminster federalism, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And that the the ones and now on the other end, like Westminster East, they are basically taking this to a more logical conclusion uh to as to what the the position entails westminster federalism entails which can lead to some obviously very serious uh, errors including like a, a complete blurring of the law gospel distinction right yeah yeah and it, okay yeah it all has to do with the covenant of works um and and that's that's what it gets back to and and murray showed that if Leviticus 18.5 is stating the condition of the covenant of grace, then there is no biblical support for a covenant operating on a works principle with Adam. Yeah, so, right. And all of this sounds awfully familiar to Piper. Uh, it's actually... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've got a post about that. He you yeah. know, he and Doug Wilson... Uh, Doug Wilson says he agrees with Piper's interpretation or rejection of the covenant of works. Right. Um, and these guys lean on Shepherd, and yes, it all gets back to the covenant of works. And and you know Doug Wilson and those guys like that who try to, you know, try to claim some kind of con- uh, confessional fidelity, they'll they'll try to emphasize this gracious nature of the Adamic covenant of works and how God condescended, and they'll try to somehow twist that into yeah. saying, well, 
you know, therefore it wasn't a covenant of works and it was all grace and yada, yada, yada. Right, right. So I really want to touch on this a little bit with respect to the law because the law here, so I had some questions up here for you. Um, sure. There's, there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that, you know, as we've kind of interacted with others and especially New Covenant guys um, on, on issues tied to certain passages of like first and first Corinthians, you know, where uh, Paul makes a distinction between those who are not under the law and those who are under the law and, uh, and, and being under the law of Christ. And then the, the passage of Colossians two, where it says that, that uh, Christ's death blots out the hand, the handwriting of ordinances that were written against us. And, uh, and then we get to Galatians where, where Paul is talking about the law there. So I, I wanted to ask you, how do you reconcile, you know, a lot of these passages that in some some of them seem to suggest that Gentiles in some way were under or guilty of the Mosaic law as a whole. And the other passages that seem to say that, well, they those who are, you know, they're not under that law, but they are still under the moral law. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think the fact goes... Uh... The issue goes back to the fact that there is overlap between the law written on the heart and the law that was given to Israel. So if we go to uh, you know Romans 2:14 to 15, um, Paul in that context is talking about Jews living up to and obeying the law that they have been given, and then he says Gentiles have the law written on their hearts, right? There's identity between the law in that context. He's saying the same law that you had revealed to you, the Gentiles have written on their heart. So there's overlap in that sense. Um, so that would just point to identity of commandments. Mm -hmm. um, but the question is then, how does that relate to, to works and, and the law as a covenant of works? And in, in that sense, um, I believe that uh, God gave in his providence he set up Israel as a type and a shadow. He set up the Mosaic Covenant as a, as a type and a shadow um, as a huge example for us to better understand not only the work of Christ, but also what was going on with Adam, what happened with Adam. Yeah. Right? Because we don't have we don't have the written record of all the details um, of the Adamic Covenant the way that we do with the Mosaic Covenant. And so, for example, with Leviticus 18.5, right, that's stating the condition of a covenant of works in its original context it referred to temporal life in the land of canaan um, when christ came the type and shadow had has become obsolete and so paul's argument is not about life in the land of canaan paul's argument is about eternal life and he uses the written revelation of the mosaic covenant as a springboard to discuss the adamic covenant of works that binds all image bearers outside of christ Right. Uh, right. So he can't he can't appeal to the written record of the Adamic covenant, but he can appeal to the written record of the Mosaic covenant and say, see, this is the term here. If you do this, you will live. Um, but he's talking about he he's talking about the Adamic covenant that binds all people. Um, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So so now, how do you? I don't know if you read Clark's commentary on. Oh, go ahead, Tim. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. This is all very very complex. I mean, this, this is. <laughs> This is deep theology, but let me see. Let me see how how I can put this. Uh, so, in the covenant of works, God gave Adam certain conditions that he had to meet in order to earn a better status and eternal life. So, would it then, 
I mean, is this correct to say that the conditions for the covenant that God made with Jesus in the new covenant were to, in part, to fulfill the all, basically everything that, that uh, came in the law, in the Mosaic law. And when Paul is, is basically saying that the Gentiles are under the law, what he's basically saying is that if they were to attempt to gain salvation through that law, that they would have to keep everything that Christ kept. And so usually when we see that a person is, uh, when, when it speaks of being under the law, it's with respect to... Um, uh, regeneration or conversion that, that you're either under the law, uh, you're under the curse that the law brings, or you're under grace. And so, um, I mean, is that, <laughs> am I, that's, that's the way that I understood yeah, yeah. it. Um, yeah. okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he, the, the moral law overlaps all of those things, right? Christ had to perfectly obey the moral law, which was part of the Mosaic covenant, part of the Adamic covenant. Um, Christ also had various other positive laws. He didn't have the law not to eat from the tree of life, uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil, but uh, he had the positive law to go to the cross and bear the sins of his people. Uh, he had these other positive laws to obey, and those were given to him in the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. Um, but uh, but yes, those um, uh, were not under the law. Uh, but under grace, yeah, refers to life under Adam, life under Christ. Um, the curse of the law refers to the curse of, of the covenant of works, and um, and you escape from that only by being in Christ. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think what you said there is certainly in line. Well, Carlos, I know that you were super excited to continue. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Um, okay, so so Brandon, now... Um, let me, sorry, let me throw one other note in real quick, yeah. The because uh, you had asked about... Um, yeah, Leviticus 18.5 and how Paul quotes it and the law and all that. I would just say one other reference is I would really encourage people to read Brian Estelle's chapter uh, about Leviticus 18.5 in the book called The Law is Not of Faith. So that you mentioned that earlier, put out by the Westminster West guys. I, I don't I don't think that their historical chap historical theology chapters in that section are reliable, but his chapter is, is excellent and really explains things. I, I, I agree with it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to get my hands on that. Um, so Okay, so now Colossians 2.14. I don't know if you've read uh, Clark's commentary on Colossians, but um, and, and if you're not prepared to answer this, it's fine. I, just, I was just curious to see what you thought about this because Clark, he argues that, um, uh, I think it's in 2.14, yeah, having erased the bond with its stipulations that was against us, which was contrary to our interest and has lifted it out of our way, nailing it to the cross. So he argues that this is talking about the entire Mosaic Law. Uh, and that would also basically put it um, that, so here, uh, let, me, let me read this. So, however, without abrogating morality, we must understand the handwriting to be the whole Mosaic Law, including the Ten Commandments. If, as is the case, the ceremonial law has been abrogated, such, a, such must be said in other passages, as for example, Acts 10 and Galatians 2.11 and, and, and following. What is meant here is the whole law, decidedly including the moral law. It is the complete law that condemns Jews and Gentiles alike. No doubt the cross atones for Jewish infractions of the sacrifices and temple ritual. But the text here says, having forgiven all your transgressions, not just ceremonial transgressions, this is what the Gentiles needed, it is also what the Jews needed. And he he's saying this because I think Calvin said that this was only referring to the ceremonial law. Um, but he's saying that it's 
obviously that it's everything applied to both Jew and Gentile. So what do you what do you make of that passage there? Yeah, I mean that certainly makes sense. I would I would have to study the passage uh, more directly to to comment too much. Um, but yeah, I I think that certainly makes sense, and yeah, it highlights highlights an issue with the Westminster view. You know, they would tend to like to make the the references to the law um, refer to the ceremonial law primarily. Um, in in a lot of instances like that, um, because they believe that, for example, and this is this is where a 1689 federalism argument against New Covenant theology is much different from a um, Westminster argument against New Covenant theology. So West, Westminster would argue that, right, the law was given on Mount Sinai to the church, and it was and it was never abrogated. So it comes to us believers through Mount Sinai and continues today, right? Uh, it was never abrogated, never made obsolete. It continues into the New Covenant. The other uh, judicial and ceremonial laws are abrogated, but not the moral law. So the moral law comes to Christians through through Mount Sinai. And um, 1689 federalism would say, you know, similar to how you just quoted Clark, no, the law was given to Israel as a covenant of works, and that entire law, moral, ceremonial, and civil, that whole unit was abrogated together with the Old Covenant, and we are not under that. Uh, we are under the, the moral law that binds all image bearers through the mediation of Christ who has forgiven us our sins um, for, for violating that law. Right. So, okay, I'm really glad you touched on that point because I wanted to ask you this as well. My understanding of the, 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 the Presbyterian and the Reformed Baptist view of the law specifically is I, I thought that there was a fair amount of overlap. I didn't think there was that much of a difference outside of uh, maybe what you touched on uh, with respect to the Mosaic Covenant, because I thought that they basically held the same, uh, un, uh, outside of Theonomist, they have a little bit more going on there, but I thought that, uh, pre, you know, Presbyterians and Baptists kind of held the same view with respect to the, because it's the moral law, right? And so, yeah, it's very, it's very similar. Okay. Um, it's, it's just some important nuances. Um, so, so we both agree that the Ten Commandments, um, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And that's the law that was given, written on the heart of all image bearers. It's, um, reflective of God's nature. It binds all people at all times. So that's where we, we, where we agree. Where we disagree is how we see the relationship between Mount Sinai and the Decalogue and um, Christians today. So a, a lot of New Covenant the, theologians will rightly disagree with Westminster when they hear these. That, that's part of why they reject the threefold division of the law is because the way that Westminster tends to argue is they'll say, yeah, the uh, ceremonial and the civil, that was abrogated, but we divide the law into three, and the Ten Commandments, the moral law, that continues... And the covenants are the same, so that that part has never been abrogated, and that continues today. And so, new covenant guys will look at that and say, "Well, no, the law is a unit. You know, it's it's been abrogated as a unit." And and we would agree with both views. <laughs> uh, you know, we would say we would say that yes, the law is a unit. The law was given to Israel in a way that it is not given to the church, and the way that it was given to Israel has been abrogated. However, part of the law that was given to Israel overlaps with the law that binds all people at all times. And that has never been abrogated uh, because it's reflective of God's nature. And they would agree with this 
um, depending on which ones you talk to, um, because they would say, well, yeah, um, you know, you shall not murder. That That's a transcendent law that applies to all people at all times. And that was part of Mosaic law, and it continues today. But the law as a whole unit is abrogated. We would say, yes, you're right. We just would identify that, that point of transcendent overlap as uh, the laws that were written in stone. And that's where we would disagree with New Covenant theology. See, and that's... Uh... I understood the moral law as transcovenantal, um, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. think that it's funny that New Covenant theologians, it seems like they primarily attack uh, the Presbyterian view, but it's the Reformed Baptists or the particular Baptists that are actually taking them to task. Yeah, it's just just remember some of the history there. So New Covenant theology um, sprung out of uh, men like uh, John Riesinger. Um John Riesinger's brother was Ernest Riesinger, and Ernest was very uh, played a huge role in that resurgence of Reformed Baptist that I talked about in the 50s. He was a Baptist? Um, yes. Oh, yes. I didn't know. I thought he was... Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so, so Ernest Riesinger held to um, the, this older 20th century Reformed Baptist view that we held to, uh, that, that we talked about, or at least I assume that he did. He, he was in those circles, and... Um, and New Covenant theology kind of uh, emerged partly in response to that, that those circles. It was regards to the Sabbath and things like that. And so for, you know, 30 years or whatever, the argument between those camps was, you know, between New Covenant theology and this more uh, Westminster-ish understanding of the One Covenant uh, multiple administrations view. So, so historically, that is what New Covenant theology has been arguing against when they are arguing with Baptist. And then it's only more recently in the last several years that the more 1689 federalism view has emerged. And, you know, some of them are taking the time to study it just like everyone else. Uh, I would say uh, I've had some good conversations with uh, Zach Maxey um, at uh, Providence Theological Seminary. And, and he seems to, after chatting with him, he seems to understand the distinction a bit better. And, and he has some good essays where, um, he, he articulates the difference between Westminster and 1689 federalism and West uh, and New Covenant theology. So and he's uh, he's New Covenant theologian. Yeah, yeah. He's um, he works at uh, Providence Theological Seminary, which is a New Covenant theology seminary under uh, Gary Long. So okay, so you touched on a very important point that I've I've kind of overlooked when we were talking about. So when we were engaging with uh, New Covenant guys about the law, uh, we kind of I assume that there was by and large an overlap between uh, Presbyterians and, and Reformed Baptists. And from what you've ex- explained, there basically is. And I even remember Calvin saying that the reason it's called the moral law is specifically not because the other commandments are not necessarily moral, that mm-hmm. you're not obliged mm-hmm. to keep them, but because it predates it predates right. the, uh, the, the Mosaic Covenant because it's tied, you know, it's obviously like the covenant of works and it continues on. But right. so I think there's there's a significant overlap there, like you like you mentioned. But I overlook something very important, and that's how they view the covenant of grace. And that is, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. what you were touching on that because they view the Mosaic covenant as part of the covenant of grace. So that moral law sort of continues a little more strongly that that maybe Reformed Baptists would would be comfortable with because we obviously don't view it as part of the covenant of grace. So that's a major nuance there that i that i had i had overlooked before and and that that does make sense i can see why i can see why there's a sharper or at least why there's a there's some kind of a difference there 
uh, between the two camps. So that that was very helpful. Um, okay, so now touching on uh, maybe we can make this the last question. Um, uh, so with respect to uh, th this whole issue of uh, this came up with my discussion with Lewis Lyons. He, the, he was the New Covenant guy that I had a you know a discussion with, and that was the issue of what law did Christ fulfill on our behalf? Because my understanding is is the Reformed view uh, affirms that the that Christ satisfied the moral law tied to the covenant of works, and that you know you have Romans five talking about. Adam and Christ, and you have that very obvious uh, uh, comparison there. But then, if he also satisfied the Mosaic, he obviously satisfied the Mosaic law as well. And so, um, how what would you say that purpose serves? So, if if Christ satisfied both sets of the laws, right? He satisfied not just the moral law, but also the the complete outworking of the Mosaic law. Uh, is that Mosaic aspect of it applied in any way shape or form to believers uh you know outside of the, the moral law being applied at, you know being credited to us for righteousness um i'm not certain i'm tracking with you um yeah me neither colors can you what was the point that louise lyons was trying to make with that because the, the way that the way that i see it it's like um christ satisfied certain demands that, that were different from the demands or stipulations that Adam would have needed to satisfy. Uh, we, we already talked about it. You know, he, Adam was, was uh, forbidden from eating of the, of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. But it doesn't... So if we were wanting to earn our righteousness um, in the new covenant, we would have to obey all that Christ... Um, we would have to obey all that that you know Christ did, but in Adam, I mean, we're already in Adam, and so the curse of of the law, the curse that that came by breaking the law, is already over our heads. Right. And so I'm not really sure. Um, it That's exactly why I'm asking this because the curse of the law is the moral law, right? But however. Uh, in Galatians, my understanding of Galatians is that Paul is talking about the Mosaic law because he's obviously talking about circumcision. But when he says, if you accept circumcision, you're bound to keep the entire law. And by that, mm -hmm. I understand mm -hmm. it to be the Mosaic law. Yes, right? yes. Because but here's the thing. Christ, Christ kept, th those were the conditions that Christ as a federal head or federal re uh, representative yes. uh, kept. So, we're, but, but here's the thing. Okay. Here's, here's, the, here's the difference. So, Lewis said that the entire satisfaction of the Mosaic law is applied to believers, is credited to believers for righteousness. But my understanding is that the Reform no. view said, no. right, that the Reform view says that it's it's the moral law specifically that's applied to us as righteousness, not the Mosaic uh, uh, outworkings. So the Mosaic Covenant never offered eternal life to anyone. Right. That that's exactly why. Yeah. That that was why I initially disagreed. Because it, what you just said there, but then how do you reconcile that with Paul saying, if you accept circumcision, you're bound to keep the entire thing? Right. So two two things. One, um, the Judaizers are arguing about eternal life, right? They are arguing that in order to be 
saved eternally, you have to have faith in Christ, and you have to obey, uh, and you have to be circumcised. Yeah. Um, so they are arg- uh, the Judaizers are, are making an argument from the Mosaic Covenant, from Mosaic Law. So Paul goes to the Mosaic Covenant and says, well, here's what the actual condition is with regards to circumcision. It, it binds you. Circumcision binds you, obligates you to obey the entire Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law says, if you want to earn the reward of the Mosaic Law, you have to keep it perfectly. Right. So in its original context, that was limited to life in the land of Canaan. Right. Um, and, and this is where kind of the misinterpretation in, uh, principle that we talked about with Westminster, it's where it has a grain of truth. Right. Because the Judaizers did misunderstand the Mosaic Covenant. They misunderstood it because they thought it was uh, offered them a reward of eternal life when it didn't. Um, but they were but, but but Paul was correct in interpreting it as a works principle. So um, Paul Paul goes from the condition of the Mosaic Covenant and says, well, if you want to apply this to eternal life, here's the condition. You got to obey it perfectly. Yeah. OK. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So now. I guess this can be a, a final thought here. Um, when Christ was uh, living, the Mosaic Covenant was still in effect. And so he satisfied the Mosaic Covenant, right? So that's, that satisfaction of, this, of the Mosaic Covenant, the, the, basically the only purpose that served or, or the main purpose that served was to usher in the New Covenant? Or what would you yeah. say? Like, what would well, you say? Yeah. Speak to Christ, um, w- Christ himself didn't um, end the Mosaic Covenant by obeying it, uh, because it was a national covenant. It wasn't just made with one person. He was not the federal head of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, it was made with the entire nation, and it was uh, kept or broken by the entire nation. Um, the entire nation broke it after it was given, <laughs> right? Uh, the first generation in the wilderness broke it. Um, God, uh, Moses went before God and asked him to have mercy. And so this is where some of the argument for the Mosaic Covenant being the covenant of grace comes from. It's because, well, if it was, you know, the covenant of works, then they would have died immediately with no grace or mercy. Um, and that's that's why we say, well, it's it's neither covenant. It's a third type of covenant. But um, but uh, Moses comes and asks God for mercy. And, and so God relents and he does not destroy Israel. And specifically, he appeals to God's promise to Abraham. And uh, because of that, God did not ultimately destroy Israel. And so you see this happen time and time and time again throughout the history of Israel where they break the Mosaic Covenant. And so they deserve the curse. They deserve utter destruction and exile. But they don't get it because God had not yet fulfilled his promise promises made to Abraham. Right. So one of the promise was that uh, the, 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 uh, the offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. And so all 12 tribes are not destroyed until they receive that whole land, you know, under David and Solomon, and they possess everything that was promised. And scripture says that the promised Abraham was fulfilled. Right after that point, uh, they split the 10 tribes and the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and the 10 tribes are wiped out. Um because the only thing that is sustaining them, the only thing left, is the promise that the Messiah would be born from them. And the promise was not that the Messiah would be born through the ten tribes. So they're done. They experience the curse of the Mosaic Covenant for breaking it. All that remains now is is the tribe of Judah. Um, 
and, and Benjamin. And so God sustains them uh, for hundreds of more years, not pouring out. He's long suffering towards them. He is withholding the Mosaic curse from them because his promise to Abraham that the Messiah would be born through them had not yet been fulfilled. When it was fulfilled, when Christ came, what did he say? What did um, John the Baptist say? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The axe is laid to the root and those who do not bear fruit will be destroyed. And Jesus warns them time and time again, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. Repent and have faith in me or you will be destroyed. He's talking about the end of the old covenant there in the Jewish context. And so uh, it's not so much that Christ's obedience came and, and fulfilled the Mosaic covenant and therefore it passed away. It's that the Abrahamic promise that Christ would be born was fulfilled. And at that point, there was nothing left to um, uh, sustain God's long suffering towards Israel. In, in the way that scripture talks about it is Abraham was not there to chase the birds away. Right. If you're wondering about that, that imagery there. So um, at that point, they stood on their own terms in the Mosaic covenant. And because they had broken it, judgment came in 70 AD and they were destroyed. And that was the end of the old covenant. So the author of Hebrews talks about it growing old and passing away. It's kind of in transition. And then 70 AD comes and that's it. That is fascinating. So I guess I need to rethink that a little bit because it, so I, I can see that makes sense. So the, you're saying the only reason the, that the Israelites were not completely wiped out was because of the Abrahamic promise of the Messiah that was going to come through them. And uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so when, yeah, right. So when Christ came, he did not actually fulfill the Mosaic covenant because it didn't actually cease until the destruction of the temple. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's different levels we can talk about it on. I mean, he himself personally, as an Israelite, obeyed Mosaic law perfectly. He kept it. Uh, he fulfilled it in the sense that typologically it pointed towards him, right? So he fulfilled uh, the shadows that pointed towards him. He was a fulfillment of those. But it's not that, oh, the Abrahamic covenant was finally obeyed by someone and therefore it's closed. Well, let, let me let me ask a question because my... Uh... I might have this wrong in my thinking, and uh, I've, I've actually never talked about this with anybody, so it's really helpful to, to talk it out now. But I thought, so the condition that Adam had to meet was, you know, not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I thought that the condition, because of what Paul says in Galatians uh, chapter 5, what Carlos alluded to before, was, uh, you know, if you were going to be justified by the law, you'd have to keep the whole law. And so I thought that that was the condition that uh, Christ, uh, because basically he's, I thought he was saying that if you want to achieve salvation this way, you're going to have to do what Christ did. Um, and so I thought that was the condition that, that Jesus met. I thought that was part of the condition that Jesus met which was perfect and, and uh, perpetual obedience to not only the moral law, but all of the, the, um, the, the law that can't, you know, he, he talks about circumcision, uh, the, the other aspects of the law uh, in total. And so now I'm wondering uh, if you guys could speak to this, uh, going back to Louis Lyon's question, what law did Christ satisfy or what were the conditions that, that Christ did satisfy? Because it sounded like, uh, I might have that wrong, so if I do, I, I'd like to I'd like to know now. Sure, yeah. So 
again, the, my position would be that uh, the Mosaic Covenant did not offer eternal life as a reward for obedience to Mosaic law. Um, well, not not to the nation of Israel, but as um, is that part of the law that Jesus, that Jesus as a federal representative fulfilled uh, as as part of the condition uh, to merit eternal life? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. So first of all, I have to clarify: Jesus was not the federal head of the Mosaic Covenant, right? He he was the federal head of all who would believe. Right, right. So we would say that, uh, yes, the, the law, uh, Jesus had to obey the moral law perfectly uh, in order to earn eternal life for us. And that was uh, the covenant of redemption was Christ's covenant of works, uh, if you want to look at it in those terms. Um, as, a, as an Israelite, he had to obey all the other Mosaic laws. He had to be circumcised because... God says in Genesis 17, if you're not circumcised as an offspring of Abraham, you're to be cut off, meaning you're to be put to death. Uh, and that's why God comes after uh, Moses in Exodus 4 to kill him, because he wasn't circumcised. So um, in that sense, you know, yeah, Jesus had to be circumcised as part of his obedience as an Israelite. Um, that kept him from dying. It doesn't necessarily mean that he earned eternal life by uh, obeying circumcision, if that makes sense there. So, yeah, no, but, but you would say that like, like you kind of mentioned earlier, Christ, uh, fulfilled the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic covenant typically, right? Like he was the type fulfillment of those types and shadows, right? Uh, right, right. It, it pointed, pointed towards him. Um, yep. And the, the type is something different. From the anti-type, they're two different things. They have two different essences. They are they are different in substance. If we're going to use those Aristotelian terms, they they are two different things, but one of them points to and reveals the other, uh, and he fulfilled it in that sense. Uh, it's what they pointed towards. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Very very interesting. Yeah, that clarified a lot. Um. Well. Yeah, and um, I think. Uh, Carlos, did you have any more questions? Because if not, I think that's a pretty good stopping point. I definitely do, but we'll probably have to ask <laughs> Brandon to come on again. Um, I, and, and, and therefore, only those who profess faith should be baptized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, it's like, what does this have to do with baptism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're still setting the groundwork here. I mean, this is it's, it's going to take a while. But no, Brandon, I'm really grateful that you came on and uh, finally got to talk to you about this stuff. Um, I really hope that we can continue the discussion with you on this because it's been it's been really fruitful and uh, I hope our listeners got a lot out of this. Um, so I'm I'm really looking forward to next time, hopefully. In the yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, just yeah, let me thank know. Thank you. Um, and, and you know, one of the things I want to say is uh, you know Pastor Hines is uh, is certainly welcome to comment on any of the stuff that we've said here today. Um, as we've always said, iron sharpens iron, and we uh, we value. We value both of you guys, and uh, we're so glad that you guys are uh, with us on the Piper issue because for us, yeah. that's huge, and uh, we, we really haven't gotten a lot of support in that area. So, Brandon, I'm, I'm very glad that, you, uh, that you're with us on that issue. And, um, you know, you've got an open invitation to come back. Um, as I said before, my wife is about to have our fourth baby. <laughs> we uh we are still trying to decide on a name. We started with Levi, then we went with Owen. Now we're 
talking about we, we also went with Phineas and now we're talking about <laughs> uh, maybe naming him Declan so uh, we don't know what the name is going to be uh, it is a baby boy um, the 19th of this month is when she's due uh, so I'm probably we'll going to be praying for you well thank you thank you I'm, I'm probably going to be uh, um, I'm going to go AWOL for a little while I've got to uh, <laughs> just for the absolutely take care yeah of just for the sake of my family so uh um carlos and my two cents my just my two cents i like owen i think owen shaughnessy has a nice <laughs> ring to it you know what declan shaughnessy declan means man of uh man of prayer and declan is is also irish so <laughs> owen uh, i like oh, how about this how about this? Owen Declan Shaughnessy. Well, okay, so uh, <laughs> I'll let everybody know. First it was Levi, then it was Phineas, then it was uh, Owen Declan, and now I'm trying to convince my wife to change it to Declan Owen. So I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll let so. everybody know what, what the name is later. But uh, anyways, Carlos, you uh, – I mean – if you decide to uh, record with Brandon, that would be pretty awesome. Um, I, I know that you're busy as well, but uh, Brandon... Yeah, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. Look forward to it. You know, Carlos, it seems like all you got to do is just, you know, come on and ask him a bunch of questions. So, <laughs> that, that's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> much... Yeah, uh, long overdue yeah. questions. Well, they're good questions. I appreciate the chance to, to chat. But Brandon, let me just say thank you again for coming on. It's always a pleasure. And uh, we hope to have you on again soon. And uh, to all of our listeners, uh, we wish you a a good week. And uh, hopefully we'll check you guys soon. God bless.